I want to show you something. This is Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 to 17. It doesn't matter if you can't read it. This is every time the word flesh appears in our passage. And every time the word spirit appears. Any guesses what themes Paul is dealing with? We're talking today about this dichotomy of two stories. In fact, for the past few weeks, we've been playing with these stories. The Adam story, the Jesus story, death and life, and now flesh and spirit. But rather than continue to tell these two stories, I'm actually going to leave the flesh story behind and just tell the story of the spirit. So this message is titled, Life in the Spirit. And no pun intended, we're going to flesh out what it means to live life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit means, one, I am free from my past. I set my mind forward. I look for the Spirit. I crucify the flesh, and I am a child of the Father. That's what life in the Spirit means for you and me. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word which is in front of us, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is within us and working around us. And as we consider what life living in the Holy Spirit means, we pray you would guide us into what that would mean for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Life in the Spirit means, number one, I am free from my past. That's the first part of life in the Spirit from Romans 8. Because of Jesus, the Jesus story, his birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension, I am free from my past. That's what life in the Spirit means. Rob has just read for us Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 to 4, so I won't read it again, but it's here on screen. This is the first paragraph of Romans 8. Paul begins one of the most epic chapters of Scripture in the whole Bible with the word, therefore. And of course, when you see a therefore, you have to ask, What's the therefore? Therefore. And it points backwards to Romans 7. If you're familiar with Romans 7, it's that gritty, tragic lament of the pre-Christ life. Paul writes this in 7 verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 7 is the Adam story. It's the pre-Christ, pre-spirit, pre-salvation story. No Jesus, no spirit, no hope. Until that point, Romans 8, 1, that hinge of life from Romans 7 into Romans 8, when everything changes. Therefore, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Life in the Spirit means I am free from my past. There's no condemnation for me. When you look at that first paragraph 
of Romans 8 that Rob read out for us, I think that's the thrust of that paragraph. I'm free from my past. When we read Romans 7, in fact, the entire first seven chapters of the book of Romans, Paul barely mentions the Holy Spirit once, maybe once or twice. He barely mentions it. But as soon as you hit Romans 8, as you're reading Romans, he just goes out of his way to talk about the Spirit 17 times in 17 verses. One mention of the Spirit per verse. Romans 7 is the pre-Christ, pre-Spirit life. And then something happens in the Gospel and Romans 8 is the Spirit-filled life. And yet, for many of us, following Jesus feels a lot more like Romans 7 than it does Romans 8. I've experienced this and I'm sure you do, you have as well. For many of us, there are addictions that we can't break, relationships that aren't getting any better, habits, patterns of behavior that we're stuck in. Life, even for a born-again Christian, can feel more like Romans 7 than Romans 8. And often there's a gap in those of us who, I'm, I'm guessing many of us would have memorized Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for me. But there's a gap in what we know is true theologically and yet what is felt experientially. Life can feel a lot more like Romans 7 than Romans 8. So how do you deal with that? How can we live a pre-Christ Romans 7 life at the same time as a Romans 8 life? I think the answer is the old TV show, The Biggest Loser. Remember that show? I remember watching that show as a kid with my family, and one of my favorite parts of the show was towards the end of the season when everyone has lost a lot of weight and they're looking really good, but they do this thing where they go to a mountain and they go for a hike with a backpack, and in the backpack is filled with all of the weight that they have just lost to the kilo. They put all the weight back on and they climb the mountain and they struggle under the weight of their past. And you can see where I'm going with this. And they say things like, how did I live with this weight? Is this what life was like in my old life with this old weight? And they struggle to climb the hill. The parallel with the Christian life, I think, is obvious. We can carry a weight of the shame and guilt and sin of our past in a backpack not realizing and not fully living in the fact that Jesus died so you could take off the backpack and you could walk in freedom. The fundamental message of the gospel is that Jesus died so you could take off the backpack, so that we could live a Romans 8 life without the weight of our past on our back. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for you in Christ. Take the backpack off. You don't have to carry it anymore. I reckon we have a tendency in life, just as we sink into the mattress when we sleep, sink into the pillow, we sort of sink into Romans 7 life as we sleep. We kind of, that backpack sort of creeps back onto our shoulders. And often we can wake up in a Romans 7 life, feeling the weight of yesterday's failures. And so I think Life in the Spirit means one of the first things, if not the first thing we do in the morning, is take the backpack off. And the way we do that is we preach Romans 8, 1 to ourselves. 
When you wake up, you might print it and put it on your bedside table. There is no condemnation for me, for I am in Christ Jesus. So this day, every day that we wake up, we can take the backpack of our sin, shame, and the guilt of our past, we can take the backpack off and walk in freedom. I think that needs to be the first thing we do in our day for life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit means I'm free from my past. And number two, I set my mind forward. The second part of life in the Spirit from the second paragraph of Romans 8 is I set my mind forward. Having woken up and preached the gospel to myself, knowing I'm free from my past, I take off the backpack. The next thing I think we should do is set our mind forward. Romans 8, 5 to 8 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. What we're talking about is spiritual formation. Life in the Spirit is spiritual formation. And if you remember a series we looked at last year called Waveform, the mind is a central part of spiritual formation. Life in the Spirit in Romans 8 involves the mind. We know in four chapters' time, Paul will say in Romans 12 too, these words about the mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice transformation happens by the work of God through the mind, through the mind. Therefore, life in the Spirit is centrally about, one of the key parts of life in the Spirit is the mind, from, where, from which transformation happens. I find it interesting, I might be the only one, but we'll see. Interesting that the word Paul uses for mind here in Romans 8 is not the same word as he uses in Romans 12 too. But here, he uses the word phronema, which has this sense of mind as in intellect, but specifically thinking with direction. If you're a science person, it would be the difference between speed and velocity. Velocity is speed with direction. Paul specifically uses a word for the mind, for the intellect, for the brain, with the sense of the direction that the mind is set. And so the question is, what are you setting your mind on? What are you thinking about? In the case of the flesh, Romans 8.5 says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set. And his, the language he uses is consistently directed towards what the flesh desires. But those who are in the Spirit, Romans 8, 5, second half, those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set, directed, attached to the compass north on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the Spirit. What are you thinking about? That's so practical. I'm still on a bit of an application high after my illustration a few weeks ago. What are you thinking about? And not, by the way, what have you thought about once or twice in your dark moments of temptation, but what are you consistently training your mind to dwell on 
the consistent pattern of your thoughts. A wise man once said, repetition rewires the brain. It does. The things we think about at a neurochemical level shape our brains. And so we need to direct our minds onto the things of the spirit. It is a fundamental truth of life, I think, that your life moves in the direction of your thinking. And I'll tell you a story to illustrate this. My family were I'm getting embarrassed already. My family were holidaying at Nelson Bay a couple years ago, and we're all suppers, meaning stand-up paddleboard, this one. And one afternoon, it was quite windy and choppy on the bay at Nelson Bay, but a few of us wanted to go out for a sup. And so I'm a cocky individual when it comes to supping. I've been doing it for years, and I never fall in. I never fall in. And so I figured I will not take off my jeans and hoodie. I will go out. You know where this story's going. I'll go for a sup in full jeans and hoodie. I took my phone off, because I'm smart that way. But full jeans and hoodie, I go out supping. And I'm proud to say I lasted a long time. Fully concentrated, knees bent, wide apart, paddle in the water at all times, looking forward until someone in my family was behind me and called my name for my attention. And I turned to look at them like this, and my head leans over the side of the board, and I fall straight in, drenched, hoodie and jeans and all. And I learned a powerful truth that day. I learned two truths. Number one, just put swimmers on. It's not worth it. But number two, your life moves in the direction that your thinking takes you. I was fine until my thinking, my mind, my eyes turned away, and my life, my body moved in the direction that my mind had set. So what are you thinking about? Where is your mind set? Because your life will head in the direction that your mind is set. Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul knows that our life takes the shape of the things that we think about. And so his wisdom is, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, on whatever is true and noble and right, on the gospel, on truth, on God. And as we set our minds on God, our life will move in that direction. So practically, what does this look like? I find I am not very able to comprehend excuse me, comprehend a Bible passage early in the morning. I need to have a coffee and wait about two hours, and then I turn to the Bible. But the way the Lord's made me, a worship song taps into something in my soul and awakens me to the reality of God. You might be like me, or you might be one of those people who can just read the Bible as soon as they wake up. The point is, early in the morning, we must set our mind forward on truth. However truth is ingested by your personality, set your mind on truth, that your life, the direction of your day may be shaped by the truth of the Word of God. Life in the Spirit means I'm free from my past. I set my mind forward, and number three, I look for the Spirit. God is always wanting to do things in and through your life by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's pretty crazy to think about. And so the third point of life in the Spirit is to look for the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 
9 to 11, the third paragraph. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Spirit, 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 Spirit. Six times. This is like the highlighted part of Spirit-filled living in Romans 8. Paul goes out of his way to mention the power and presence and productivity of the Spirit in the life of a believer. As I said before, you read Romans 1 through 7, it barely mentions the Spirit once until Romans 8 when Paul lets loose on the Spirit. He's saying here, the mark of a Christian, of a believer, someone who has faith in Jesus, is the Spirit. He says it every possible way. If you have the Spirit, you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you don't have the Spirit. The Spirit is the mark of the presence of... I'm getting twisted. The presence of the Spirit in your life is the mark of a believer in Jesus. And yet, when was the last time you or I acknowledged the power and presence of the Spirit in our life? As in, could you stand up right now and tell a story of the Holy Spirit's work in your life in the past week? Undeniable. I'll go first. Not really. I couldn't probably tell you a story, oh, the Holy Spirit did that through me or in me last week. So we have to look for the Spirit. Look for the Spirit and partner with the work that He would want to do. I think as we go throughout our day and we go to work or uni or whatever our day looks like, we have a tendency for our eyes, even though we might start the morning really well, fixing our mind on truth, our eyes sink to the matters of this world and we just get caught up in life. And yet, the Holy Spirit doesn't just live up here, but He lives in here and in every part of our week. And He wants to do stuff through you at work and at uni and at wherever your day takes you. The Holy Spirit wants to work in your life because the mark of a follower of Jesus is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And yet I think part of that is we need to look for the Spirit. You've heard the expression, the elephant in the room before. It means, as you know, a big thing in the room that no one's addressing. I don't mean to call God an elephant, but the Holy Spirit is in the room. Every room, any room you walk into, the Spirit of God is there. And yet, like the elephant in the room idiom, we don't often acknowledge him fully or partner with the work that he would want to do in this room. I had fun this week thinking that the word room sounds like realm. So you go to Romans 8, 9, try this. You, however, are not in the room of the flesh, but in the room of the Spirit. It is true that every single room that you walk into, the Spirit of God is already in that room. Already at work, wanting to do things, wanting to manifest the kingdom of heaven in that room. Can you imagine 
if we were individuals and a church who walk into every room and think, Lord, Holy Spirit, what are you already doing in this room? And how are you inviting me to partner with you in that work that you are doing? The Holy Spirit is in every single room. So look for the Spirit. Walk into the room and with eyes of faith, look, where are you at work? And I am trusting that the Spirit, if we were to do it in afternoon tea in a moment, morning tea, although it might be afternoon by the time we get there, if you would listen to the Spirit, sorry, that was not needed, if you would listen to the Spirit, the Spirit might say, that person's had a really bad week. Would you bring them a Bible passage and an encouragement? Would you go talk to that person? The Spirit could do amazing things through a person who is looking for the Spirit. So that's, I think, the third part of life in the Spirit is to look for the Spirit. Life in the Spirit means, one, I'm free from my past, I set my mind forward, I look for the Spirit, and four, I crucify the flesh. Jesus Christ was crucified once and for all. In his death, he totally and completely disarmed the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over them. And in the death of Jesus, we who have faith were also crucified with him, as Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him. And yet, even though our old flesh, our old self, has been crucified with Christ in the past, there is an ongoing need to crucify the flesh for life in the Spirit. Romans 8, 12 to 13 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Last week, Jonathan explored this theme in depth, so I'm not going to go into it too much, in a message titled, Die to Live. If you want to go back and listen to that and just plug all of that content into this part of the message, please do, just look it up on your podcast provider. But the key line of that message was, die a little to live a lot. There is a need in the Christian life, in life in the spirit, to die to the flesh and live to the spirit. Verse 14 says, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Paul has spoken earlier about the role of the mind in life in the spirit, and now he turns, I think, to the body. When you think about it, there's no sin that you could commit that doesn't happen in or through the body. The body is where sin happens. The brain, the chemicals, the limbs, that's where sin happens. But that sin that we could commit through our body has a kind of chain reaction process to it. And James 1, I think, gives us some of that process. When tempted, James says, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James sets out the chain of events of temptation. Desire, sin, death. Desire, sin, death. I think in the Roman series so far, we have firmly secured the sin equals death bit of the equation. But we haven't talked so much about the desire, sin 
part of the equation. When you feel desire, strong desire of the flesh, everything in you will say, I will explode if I don't do blank. I will die, I will blow up if I do not gratify the desire of the flesh, whatever the desire is. And we know sin equals death, but it is a lie. It's a lie of the world, the flesh, and the devil that desire firmly equals sin. Desire does not have to equal sin. There is a way out. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. This is it. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. The flesh would want to say to you, I have no choice but to give in. Resistance is futile. Desire equals sin. But the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel says, no, it doesn't. That's a lie. Desire does not equal sin. And sin does not equal death because of the Lord Jesus, because he took our death for us. Paul speaks to a very practical strategy for resisting sin. In Galatians 6.14, it says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which, this is it, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love this idea of dual cruciformity. The world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. That means that everything I look at, every temptation I feel, every engagement with the world is seen through the lens of the cross. The world has lost its allure to me because it is crucified to me. And as the world tries to get me to go along with its schemes, I'm crucified to the world. There is a cross-shaped relationship between me and the world. Dual cruciformity, the world crucified to me and I to the world. More practically, Steve Cuss is an Australian pastor living in America. He wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. And he has this beautiful line which he uses to fight temptation. And when he feels it, he just says, Jesus died, so I don't need to blank. Jesus died, so I don't need to blank. Fill in the gap of whatever sin you're tempted to feeling. That is so helpful. Jesus died, so I don't have to anymore. You imagine saying that to the flesh, your own flesh, which like a toddler says, I will explode if I don't get my way. You can say, filled with the Spirit, only by the power of the Spirit. No. Jesus died, so I don't have to do that anymore. That's not who I am anymore. Jesus died, so I don't need to blank. Life in the Spirit means I'm free from my past. I set my mind forward. I look for the Spirit. I crucify the flesh. And number five, we're coming into land with this. I am a child of the Father. The last paragraph of the first half of Romans 8 grounds the identity of those of us who have faith in Jesus as sons and daughters of God. I love that through the gospel, we are welcomed not as subjects or citizens or slaves or servants, but sons and daughters. Because of what Jesus has done, we get to call him Father. 
And as twice now Hebrews has been mentioned, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and call him Father. Let me read the paragraph at the end of the first half of Romans, Romans 8.14. For those who are led by the Spirit of, the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory also. Paul wraps up that first half of Romans with a reflection on identity. And as he speaks about identity, nothing matters more than the identity of believers as sons and daughters of the Father. That's how Paul ends this section. I think when you strip life back, you strip off any obligation that we do have as a result of the grace of God, obligation to crucify the flesh, to set the mind forward, behind and beneath all that, we are unchangeably a child of the Father. That's what Paul says. I got married seven weeks and one day ago, as I like to keep reminding you, because I think it's the coolest thing. My wife has pretty much just finished legally changing her name. She is no longer a Haddon, she is a Shanks. Thank you, Lord. She's a Shanks. But it's funny, multiple times it's happened where uh, we've received letters in the mail or she's written her name, and you write Courtney Haddon, and they have to cross out Haddon and write Shanks, because she is not a Haddon anymore. She's a shanks. And that's what the Spirit does to our spirit. It says, you are not what you used to be. The name that you called yourself, that someone else called you, worthless, sinful, whatever that word was, that's not your name anymore. The Spirit testifies with our spirit at the deepest level of our being that we are children of the Father and we have a new name. That's what the Spirit does. You're a child of God. So beneath anything that we do in life in the Spirit, we are grounded firmly, unchangeably, securely in our identity as children of the Father. The Father loves us so much. He's so delighted with us. And He would love to pour out His Spirit on us and enable us to live Spirit-filled lives, Spirit-led lives, but it doesn't change the fact that we're children of God. And so we've been mapping this life in the Spirit pretty much over the course of a day. I think it's a beautiful way to end the day. It's good to remember at all times in the day, but when you rest your head on the pillow and you're starting to sink into sleep, just to remember, no matter what the day brought, the success or the failure, you're a child of God. Abba, Father, We've talked in waveform about breath prayers, breathing in and out and saying words. You could say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And just know that he loves you so much. And the God of the universe made a way that you could call him Father. Not only God, King, Judge, Lord, but Father. That's where our identity comes from. Life in the Spirit is grounded in this identity that the God of the universe we call Father because of Jesus.
Life in the Spirit means, one, I'm free from my past. I set my mind forward. I look for the Spirit. I crucify the flesh. And at the end of the day, I'm always a child of the Father. And this life in the Spirit, I think, has daily implications. It shapes the way that we would live that we would wake up and preach the gospel to ourselves, taking the backpack of our past off and say, there is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. And secondly, that we would early in the day set our mind on truth by a worship song, by verse of the day from you version, however you work it for you, your personality, set your thinking, your mind in the direction of truth. In the middle of the day when we walk into a hundred rooms for meetings at work or whatever, know that the Holy Spirit of God himself is already in that room and he wants to partner with you. So look for the Spirit. Fourthly, when temptation comes, typically towards the end of the day when you're getting tired, when that temptation comes and it says, you have no choice but to give in to me, you can say, Jesus died so I don't need to anymore. And lastly, at the end of the day, whatever the day brought, when your head hits that pillow, you rest firmly and securely in your identity as beloved children of the Father. That's life in the Spirit. I'll say it one more time. I'm free from my past. I set my mind forward. I look for the Spirit. I crucify the flesh, and I am a child of the Father. Let's pray as the band comes up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we get to call you that. Because Jesus has made us righteous and purified us, we get to approach you and call you by the most beautiful name, Father. And you call us sons and daughters. And in that place, you give us your spirit, the spirit of holiness and truth and power and love. And you dwell with us, in us, in us as community and as individuals. And Lord, we thank you for the life that the blood of Jesus has won for us, that there is no condemnation for us. So help us to live life in the Spirit, to not rely on the flesh, to keep Romans 7 behind us, and to step forward with you into Romans 8 life. Help us to look for the Spirit, for the places where you are at work. Help us to crucify the flesh and to know that we have a firm identity as children of the Father. In in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.